Hello there, my name is Chris Fomsby, and welcome to the Bird Lap Podcast. I'm here with Chris Abel. Hello. Thanks uh, for joining us once again. We have been receiving emails and text messages and DMs just uh, thanking us for this podcast. It's really not something we need to be thanked for. We just really enjoy doing it. I think we would have these conversations regardless if anybody was listening in. But we do appreciate the fact that you guys are, are writing in and helping us uh, make this better. We want it to be something that is a resource for folks and something that is going to help churches reach and engage millennials and Generation Z. One of the things, Chris, as you know, that has been commented to us numerous occasions is that we spend too much time talking about millennials and not enough time talking about Gen Z. So if that's one of you who have wrote wrote in and you're listening today, you'll be glad to know we're talking about Gen Z today. But I do want you to know that I think it's really important that we not just jump past millennials and go to Gen Z. It seems like everybody is kind of, quote unquote, done with millennials. The problem with that is a couple of things. One, you know, 75 million millennials in the U.S. So to just stop talking about them and pretend like, well, we had our chance and missed it, it's just not good stewardship of the kingdom, in my opinion. The other thing is like, you know, millennials are not just kids. Millennials have kids. These are the young adults in our churches that are in their 20s and 30s, married with kids and married without kids. Regardless, these are people who are, I believe, really key to participating in God's mission to restore the world. And if we just say, well, we missed that boat, or we did what we could, or maybe you say, we did a great job, wherever you are on the spectrum of reaching and engaging millennials, don't just skip it and go to Gen Z, right, and start thinking all oh, the new trend. You know, marketing people are talking about Gen Z now, and they should be. It's great. We shouldn't not talk about Gen Z. I'm just saying, like, I think we got to talk about both. So does that? I don't know if that even makes any sense, but I, I feel like it's important to say that because the, the, the requests I'm getting to come and speak or to come and train or to write this is all Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen Z, and I'm going wait a minute, like, what about millennials? Are we just done with them? So wow. I didn't you, know that. Have you experienced that at all? No, that's, that's fascinating to how me. Does, how do you feel about that, being one who works primarily with millennials every day? <laughs> I think people are tired of the millennial discussion. You know, I think it's been had for 10 years now. I think people are discouraged by it. I think that the idea of a new generation means, like, a new chance, right? Yeah. It's, uh, I think so it's just human nature to move on to the, the new thing. It's like the new TV show. That's hip. Yeah. Um, no, I was just, man... I like I, I like Gen Z. I don't interact with them too much now. I, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but I, yeah. I I taught our confirmation class at uh, at Resurrection this week, and I mean it was really cool to see 300 kids. I mean, got like, that's such an incredible movement that God has helped make happen in our church. But uh, but it was just cool to be back in a younger generation. I don't work with teenagers that much anymore. Uh, but it was weird to see how much the how much has changed since the young millennials I was working with in like 2009. Um, versus now, almost ten years later, like it's a lot has changed Absolutely, in one yeah. in one decade. Yeah, like it, it was surprising to me. Um, but I also I kind of miss I miss I missed youth. I think because they're more malleable. You know, like they're they're hungrier for relationship. They're more interested in ideas. Um, they're developing their worldviews. And I think the older you get, the, the less you kind of do that. Unfortunately, know? I think that's true for me too. I also love the energy. Yeah. And one of the things I coach basketball and baseball my son's teams you know and i love just being around gen z for the energy they bring me right it's even selfish i guess but like the energy that comes along with the other things that you mentioned i feel like when i spend my time just working with adults it's almost like 
well, there's no reason for me to get excited about this. I've been doing it for 25 years, and it's like, oh, that's just, poor that's just wrong. No, that's not everybody, of course, but... You know someone's like, oh, don't forget about the baby boomers. Don't move <laughs> on to the millennials and then the Gen Z. I know, We're but still there, here. Are, there are six generations living in the church today. It is important to be intergenerational, but my, my passion, and this is why I started Burlap, my passion is to help churches reach young people because I've always had a heart for young people. I mean, I... I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I'm, I've written extensively on it. I've worked in numerous churches. And I, I just think, to me, it's just what I'm called to do. And so since the choice is uh, for me to lead this organization, we're going to work on reaching younger audiences, millennials and Gen Z. But with that, let me just say that one of the things that's been commented about our podcast is sometimes that you and I talk philosophically, but we don't talk very practically. We're deep thinkers. Yeah, Sorry. That's so far from the truth. <laughs> but I do, I think it's important that, you know, we be practical, that if we're going to resource churches and organizations, that we can do that. So what we're going to do today is uh, we are going to look at the Bible and Gen Z. Chris, you just started sharing this, but you had the experience to teach the confirmation group this past Sunday, was it, or the Sunday before? Yeah, it was pe- okay, this, this past, past Sunday. Sunday. And uh, 300 or so youth in there, along with adults, volunteers, you know, confirmation mentors and all that stuff. And uh, you spoke on five lessons, if you will, that for Gen Z and the Bible. And I think it would be cool for you to basically give your talk here so that very practically somebody could rip it from this podcast and give it in their own context with their students and leaders. What, how do you feel about that? Let's do it. I'm a little nervous about this kind of stuff, um, primarily because uh, it's different giving a talk to a, you know, a group of teenagers in your own church versus putting something out on the internet. And we realize there's a lot of different theological perspectives, and we've stayed away in most parts from, I think, theology on this podcast. And we talk a lot about data, statistics, generations. Theology can be a real hot-button issue for people, and there's a lot of debate, and there's church splits happening. All that to be said, uh, what I'm going to be teaching today in the context uh, of what I shared in Confirmation was the five things about the Bible that I wish I had known when I was their age. And there's also, I think, um, a lot of application for how people, how young people see the Bible today. So take what is helpful to you, and if you disagree or find uh, any of this to be, you know, troubling to you, uh, that's fine. Totally understand. Just, you know, take take what helps and leave the rest. So I want to start off with, with this. Uh, I watched this a video by a YouTube celebrity named Paul Logan. Is that right? Logan Paul. Logan Paul. Logan Paul. This week or a couple weeks ago. He's been in the news. You might yeah. have heard about this a couple weeks ago. And this guy's a YouTube celebrity. And I find that a lot of Gen Z teenagers right now are huge into these YouTube celebrities. Uh, My son has his backpack. The, the whole be a maverick thing. He wears his he wears the backpack. Really? Yeah. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, is well, that a thing? I, I think be a, be a maverick and, and Logan Paul are the same thing. I, okay. It could be mixing and it, it means up with you some carry up. a backpack around. Well, and I'm just saying he he bought online from Logan oh, Paul his backpack. No. Was, yeah. I mean, he did? He's into it. Okay. I know teenagers who literally they've gone on tour. They've gone and bought tickets to these YouTube celebrities who go on tour. Um, and they'll have shows, and you can go and meet them and pay for their signatures and stuff. Like this is a this is a real phenomenon. Going well, I on met right this now. guy uh, at the K at a Royals game. He his name is Zach. I forget his last name, but he goes to all the stadiums and gets baseballs, like home run balls, during like batting practice. And he's like a YouTube sensation. My son was more interested in going 
and meeting him than he was the game that day. So oh like it happens. They're all out there. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you know how old we sound right now? That we're, we're like, you this YouTube phenomenon. <laughs> um, well, we are kind of old. So, but like, think about this. So you have an entire generation of millions and millions and millions of people around the world who get their source of information, inspiration, wisdom, and what's cool, what like what kind of lifestyles they should live. They get it from other 20 and 30 somethings who happen to have a YouTube channel. And that to me is really an interesting example of how, how the world works today. We live in the information age. Gen Z has grown up. They don't remember a time without high-speed internet. It is, it is part of their life. It is part of the way the world works. You know, I'm about to turn 34, which means old. I'm old, man. Like, I used dial-up internet when I was in high school. Like, I didn't get a cell phone until I was know, in college. You know, I just read an article, businessinsider.com, said uh, 40% of Gen Z said they'd rather have working Wi-Fi than working bathrooms. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? To your point about information and internet and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's hilarious, that first of all. That is funny. But you have this world of I, I mean, need a connection. working bathroom. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I no, I don't, I don't, I'm okay without Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we have so much information, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that that information is good or helpful. I mean, another buzzword that you guys are probably all familiar with is the fake news phenomenon, is there's literally so much information that you don't know what is real and what isn't. And what's, uh, what's funny to me about that is that we have this attitude that anything from the past is old, is archaic, is uh, outdated, uh, doesn't apply to life today. And we're always looking for the next newest thing, next newest trend, next newest information, next newest book. And yet when we come to the scripture, I mean, all of us are part of, if you're a leader in the church today, like we're, we, we, we are part of an ancient book. Like we, we, we get our lessons and we learn about our God through this ancient book. And we live in a society that thinks old is, is done. With, what I think is hilarious is that uh, the, all this modern information, like so, so much of it is garbage. Like this guy, Logan Paul. So the, the whole point I was going to pull Logan Paul. Okay. The whole thing is he got in trouble because he was in Japan. And he does these video vlogs, or video blogs, vit vlogs, and he, uh, they went to this suicide forest in Japan where people um, often take their lives, and they found a body. And instead of respecting that or cutting the footage, they used it to get hits, to get views. And there was a huge backlash because it said it, basically people finally woke up and said, oh, this, is what, this has gone too far. Mm -hmm. Like this is, These are the people we admire. These are the leaders that we look to. And look, look, at, look at how they live their lives and look at how they treat other people. You know, is this the world we want? So that was the intro just to say, man, if this is the world, like there actually might be something worth listening to in the past and from previous generations and from our scriptures and that while the world today thinks that wisdom only comes from the coolest, newest celebrity, we live, we're, as Christians, we live out a belief that true wisdom and character develops like it's been passed down to us over thousands of years. And that's why the Bible matters today. So that was a little bit of an intro. That being said... So that's the intro you gave that's the when intro you did your talk. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, just to kind of relate to them, the saying, hey, listen, like just because all this stuff is going on doesn't mean like it's access to truth or wisdom. Um, and then uh, I showed a video from the Alpha course. I know I, we offer Alpha here, and you might have a church that offers the Alpha course, and it's from one of their first two lessons. And it basically um, shows how the Bible is um, historically 
accurate from a secular perspective, uh, which I think is really cool. I feel very few people look at the Bible from just this kind of secular perspective of, is this book reliable? Occasionally I'll encounter like evangelical kind of um, apologetics about the Bible, which is supposed to like logically convince you to care about the Bible. But, you know, to me that falls short. I don't think you can use logic to really sell the thing if somebody's skeptical. But I think it's helpful to like, as Christians, understand how accurate and reliable is this text over 2,000 years? Like, did people change it? When did it come into creation? A lot of this stuff my pastors never told me growing up. I had to go to seminary before I learned that, you know, the Bible really didn't come into, didn't really make it into one collected book until 350. Like, for 300 years, Christians didn't have a New Testament. They had letters. And we'll talk about a little more of that. So, by the way, just, just by way of introduction on this Alpha video... Uh, if, if you're not familiar with the Alpha Course, Alpha comes out of uh, Holy Trinity Brompton in London. And Alpha is literally all around the world. I, I'm, the reason why I'm taking a moment here to share about it is because I, th- I think it's an unbelievable resource for churches that many people, even though 30 million people around the world have gone through Alpha, there's so many churches that still are unaware of the Alpha Course. But the reason why I started Burlap, actually, is tied to Alpha. And that, I don't think I ever told you this no. story, but I'm in London. I get invited to Holy Trinity Brompton. I, I decide I'm going to go and see them run this Alpha thing. And I leave my hotel. I start walking down the street. And uh, I'm in uh, Kensington. If you've ever been to London, you're, I'm near the Kensington shop, uh, subway, the, you know, the uh, underground. Walking down the street there, and I'm making my way over to HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, which is this little, little tiny church, kind of in a back alley almost. And I and around the corner of this building to start heading into this back alley to make my way into the church. And there's this line, or a queue, as they would call it, right? And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? I wonder where the concert is, or I wonder why people are waiting to get into this art gallery or whatever. And I, so I just kept walking towards the church, and I realized about two-thirds of the way towards the church that this line was a queue to get into the church to talk about Jesus, to talk about Alpha, or to talk about Jesus using the Alpha course. And in that moment, I just thought to myself, why not us? Like, why, why in North America can't we have a place where there are literally a thousand people lined up to come into a church to talk about Jesus? And I don't have any science behind it, but I looked at the crowd pretty good as I was kind of standing there astounded, and most of them were 28 to 30 years old. And I thought, this, this can change in the U.S., particularly uh, the U.S., but also around North America, U.S. and Canada. And so that's kind of why I started Burlap. Long story. We might edit that out later. Yeah. <laughs> but the bottom line is, like, man, it, Alpha Course is huge. And so to, uh, to have the opportunity for people to know about it is, is really stirring to me. Now, this is, like a, this is funny. We, we're not, like, sponsored by Alpha. We don't get any money from Alpha. This is just both of us have had positive experiences. Oh, we don't? We don't get any of them? No, let, sorry. Let's, sorry to... let's edit it out then. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, what I think works about Alpha is this program, and you can find it. If you just Google Alpha, yeah, you'll yeah, find Alpha, of course. Stuff. Um, what works about it is it, it speaks to um, skeptics, Yeah. right? The whole thing, when they teach their group leaders about how to help guide conversations, they say, look for the person that's the most skeptical in the room and let them speak first because then they set the bar and they make other people feel comfortable about being where they are. What happens is in churches, people come in and they feel they have to pretend. Alpha says, no, 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 we're just having the discussion. You don't have to become a Christian. You don't have to believe any of this stuff. We just want to create space for conversation and give you stuff to think about. And I love that approach. And I've kind of taken a little bit of that approach with this these lessons to the Bible. So I couldn't say this any better, so we're just going to do a quick clip from one of these alpha things. You can find more of their information online. 
But here's just a two-minute clip um, describing, this is from a Professor Alistair McGrath, uh, I think I have that name right, and he's talking about uh, textual criticism and how do we know that the Bible, just from a secular perspective, is a worthwhile text of history? How did it, has it stayed the same over time and is it reliable? So listen to this. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. I absolutely love that part of um, the Alpha Course. That's Alistair McGrath. He uh, is a professor and a scholar about textual criticism. And he, I shared this to the class because uh, there's a lot of skeptics. These 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds, they're thinking more critically. Uh, about their religion. They're thinking more critically about the Bible. And I think more so than any other generation that I've been aware of. Uh, and we need to speak to that skepticism. We need to say, hey, listen, uh, we want to step up to the bat here, right? We don't want to say just because, like this Bible is God's word, just because it says it is. Like that's not going to, to that's not going to make anyone satisfied. Uh, so this is w where I started with, hey, listen, we're going to talk about this book, but we need to know that it's also historically reliable. At the least, it's a phenomenon. There's no other book on the planet quite like this, that we've had this wisdom and these stories passed on in such an accurate format over thousands of years. At the most, it might be God speaking to us and teaching us. So 
let's get down to it. The five lessons that I eventually got to <laughs> were the first lesson is this. You're not getting a grade. And I don't know about you, Chris, or about you who are listening, but I was the kid in school who did the least amount of effort for the most amount of punch. Yeah. So if I had a Spanish class with, uh, you know, and I knew that the quizzes were 16% of my grade and there were four quizzes, then I wouldn't study for the first quiz because it was only four points of my grade. I could get a 50 and only have two points taken off my final grade, which is a terrible way to approach your education. At least you were forward thinking. There, <laughs> yeah. Some kind of planning. There was some planning strategy <laughs> there, right? Um, I rationed my energies. Uh, no, but I told my girlfriend about that and she was so frustrated because she's that kind of person who studied, you know, put her heart into every single quiz. Right. And the truth is that a lot of us treat school like, or if you were in school, whatever you, a lot of us treated school for the grades. Like that was the point of school was to get an A, to get the GPA, to go to send a college to X, Y, or Z. What's funny is the point of school isn't the grades. The point of school is learning. The experience is like growing. Right? That's why we go to school. Grades are just supposed to be uh, a, a um, measure of how well you are learning. Right. How, a metric on development. It's a metric on development. So I asked some teacher friends and they said it doesn't unfortunately work that way. But it's, it's supposed to be that way. Um, I say sometimes going to school for the letter grade is like driving a car to get the, the speedometer up to 100. Like it's not the point. That thing is just a measure of how fast you're going from point A to point B. But what happens is sometimes with the Bible, we do this same thing. Christians want to go to heaven, right? We want to obey the rules. We want to uh, learn the Bible because our pastor says so. Uh, you know, we have this attitude towards the Bible that we need to get an A, that we're in, we need to study this thing because God wants us to study this thing. Uh, and what I think people need to know today and what we need to challenge our next generations about is that the Bible doesn't ex isn't here as a, a giant rule book that we're going to be graded on at the end of our lives. Now, the Bible's here to help us, just like school, grow. Like, this thing is here to help us grow. Um, in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul says this, Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Paul says it right there. The point of this book, every scripture, is to help you grow and do something on this planet. Like, that's what scripture is for. All right, that's why it's God-breathed. And I don't think we teach that enough, right? That's inspiring to say this book is to help you be better. This book is to help you grow. This book is to help you make a difference. And we don't go there. So have That's you good. No, that's good. I, th I think it's a really important distinction for Gen Z students to think, okay, wh what's, you know, what's the deal here? Well, one, you're, you're not getting a grade, right? It, it's not you're not getting a grade. This is about the experience. This is about... The story, this is about the rootedness of uh, a culture or a people in the story uh, that tells us about who God is. And the more deeply we engage it, the more it helps us to grow. But we're not getting a grade. And unfortunately, we like to grade uh, people way yeah. too much. And I think that's hurt us as a church as it relates to not our specific church, but as the church in general across the, across the globe. And uh, I, I think combining that with your points on skepticism is huge, too, because that's why we should be okay with the skeptic, realizing, like, there's no relationship to this story yet, to the Bible yet. So yeah. how do we help them develop that? Well, because it's living in us, right? So anyway, yeah. So that was point number one. What did you tell them with point number two? Second one, super corny, guys. The Bible is your best friend. And I, I don't mean like you should go hang out and play Pokemon Go with this, with the, like with your Bible in your pocket or whatever. But uh, you want to know how 
you know if someone is a best friend or a true friend, try telling them a truth about something they don't want to hear. Right? I've had friendships like this where um, somebody was making a mistake, hurting someone or themselves, and I spoke up and it ended the friendship because they didn't want to hear what a friend had to say. They didn't want to be challenged. I don't know. Have you had any relationships like that? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm, I feel I'm, like you're pretty outspoken. I'm, I'm still in, well, I, I'm, I'm a truth teller for sure, but I, I can I can honestly tell you that I, I, I'm still married today because a friend of mine said, dude, do you like being married? Do you love your wife? And I said, of course, yes. And yes. He said, well then stop being a jerk. You're a jerk. And I was like, whoa. So I know that's not what this is about. This isn't about marriage. It's not about my relationship with my wife. But it's about people telling the truth. And it's hard. But Mm -hmm. those are the people who love you the most. And it's hard to receive. It's hard to say. But when you can get to it, it's... I mean, it's, it's, it's the trajectory changer. Right? It helps I mean, Yeah. It helps trajectory you. changer. Yeah. And this is the relationship ideally we have with the scriptures, um, that they're not that best friend in the mentality of just hanging out with you. They're the best friend in that they will, it will tell you truths that are uncomfortable to hear. Uh, somebody just sent me a quote by, uh, let's see, Bonhoeffer. And it says this, um, or it says that we no longer read the Bible seriously. We read it no longer against ourselves, but only for ourselves. Meaning we only read the Bible to feel good. We don't read the Bible to actually challenge ourselves in areas where to we're transform messed us, up. To, to transform change us, us, to help us develop. Mm-hmm. No pun intended to the, you know, the connection back to not getting a grade, right? I mean. Right. And I think a good example of this is, and I'll just, you know, you're probably familiar of the story of King David and Bathsheba. You know, King David, who's came from such humble origins, becomes king of all of Israel. He sees this woman bathing uh, on the, on her roof, and he lusts after her. He has her husband killed in battle, and then he takes her as his wife. And uh, we have this this man who once had what the Bible said had a heart after the God's own heart. Like what a what a compliment. And he goes from that to murder and something that sounds awfully close to rape. And then the prophet Nathan comes to him. And this is what the scripture says. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor, which is so funny to me that he comes to David and he tells him a story. He doesn't hit him straight on. He tells him a story. Two men in the city, one rich, one poor, And just to summarize this, the rich man had all these sheep and cattle, and the poor man had one lamb that he loved to the point where he let it eat from his plate, sip from his cup, and sleep in his arms, which is adorable, by the way. (laughs) The Bible's cute sometimes. Now, a traveler. That would totally be like a meme on Facebook. I know, like that Facebook video would get viral. No kidding. Uh, Now, a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd, so he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the visitor. Now, at this point, David gets furious, and he says to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. And Nathan tells David, You are that man. You're that guy. Oh, like this, this is a Bible passage, right, that shows, it's kind of like meta in the fact of like, it shows mm-hmm. what it looks like to challenge someone in a close way, a good person who's done something bad, and challenge them to grow. And David, right, is repentant. He realizes what he's done. But friends, we live in a world where no one wants to be challenged anymore, right? We cut people off. We delete them off of our friends list. 
we point fingers at every leader, every political figure, every person that we don't like, right? We're, this world is full more than I've ever seen a finger pointing. And what the Bible might do is actually point that finger back at you and yeah. challenge you, not, not just critically, but to help you grow because you and I have things that we need to work on too. My dad used to tell me all the time, like when you point, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) That's kind of cheesy, but I mean, it helps me. Obviously I still remember it from a very young age. So, so number one was, um, you're You're not not getting getting a grade. grade. Two was the Bible's your best friend or the Bible. Uh, yeah, the Bible's your best friend. Okay. And then we're going to do the next three real fast guys. Uh, let's see. Number three is, uh, your faith does not equal sign your Bible knowledge. Your faith does not equal sign your Bible knowledge. Now, I grew up in a church where you learn the Bible inside and out, and I'm so grateful for those years. But it was also an environment that made me feel like my faith was my Bible education, that if I didn't know my Bible inside and out, that I didn't have faith or I didn't have a relationship with God. And so I told the story about a, uh, somebody who writes a love letter to their crush, right? And they, oh man, it is a, it is a beautiful, it is just poetry. It just glides onto the paper and you give this love letter over and the person receives it and they love it and they read it over and they memorize it and they keep it in their back pocket or their purse. And then it ends up being your birthday and you go to this person who loves this love letter and you say, Hey, let's go out to eat. Uh, and this point I let, you know, people suggest something, uh, in the crowd and, uh, say Chipotle, right? We're going to go eat Chipotle, which is my personal favorite. And if, what if this person you're in a relationship with was like, Oh, gross. Like, no, I'd rather I actually have plans. I'm going to go hang out with Julie or Andrew tonight. We're going to play Xbox. And you know, like that would be, that'd be really sad on your birthday. You just wanted this one thing. And this person didn't care about what you felt. Now, even though they love the love letter, right? They loved receiving it. They memorized, they keep it with them that's still a broken relationship, right? There's sometimes what we do as Christians is we think that biblical knowledge means that we have a good relationship with the writer of that letter, with the writer of that book. Uh, and it's not, right? What needs to come first is a relationship with the writer of that letter. Just like a romance, maybe that love letter starts something. But if you care more about that letter than the person who wrote it, right, you've got your priorities mixed up. And this is something that I think we should realize about the Bible. It's good to read the love letter from our creator, but we shouldn't care more about that letter than we do the person who wrote it. Yeah, right on. Yeah. That's good. Fourth point, no one owns the Bible. Everyone owns the Bible. Nice. This one's kind of confusing. When I was in high school, I uh, had a, I dated my pastor's daughter, which was always kind of risky. But, you know, Wait, that's way weird. so we, we, had, we had Thanksgiving together and I was a vegetarian for nine months. Like I watched one of those YouTube videos of like where, uh, I don't even think it was on YouTube. It was uh like a, our meat was made. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, it was awful, right? So opened my eyes, didn't want to eat any meat for a while until I went to Costco, by the way, and wanted a hot dog and that ended my vegetarian a, streak. A hot dog ended your Dude, vegetarian streak? I love, I love hot, hot dogs. dogs. They're so you know, good. I can, uh, I can understand like a nice New York strip steak, but a hot dog <laughs> at Costco. They, they're real good. They're I'll, Hebrew okay. national I'll, hot dogs. I'll take your word for it. Okay. Or they used to be. I don't know. So uh, this one, no one owns the Bible. So this pastor, he ended up telling me at Thanksgiving dinner, he was like, you know, God wants you to eat meat. And I was like, all right, like, where does it say that? And he said, uh, you know, after Noah got off the the ark, you know, it says go and eat or something like that. And, and uh, I remember thinking at the time, you know, 
this guy's my pastor, but I don't think he like knows what he's talking about. This is like a weird thing to stick your flag in, right? Like that God wants you to eat meat. God doesn't want anyone to be vegetarian. And you know, and you you made the point when I was telling you the story earlier. What yeah, was Daniel. It? Daniel said, you know, remember Daniel, where he's like, we're we'll train ourselves and we'll train according to the Lord and he eats fruits and vegetables and then he's just freaking ripped. Remember that? Yes. Like, I don't I mean, know if the, I don't remember the ripped part, but well, I mean, you know, that's when in my, <laughs> he's ili- healthier in my illustrative yeah. Bible as a kid, he looked ripped. Really? Yeah. He looked oh, ripped. That's funny. I'm not going to lie. So, so yeah. So it made me realize like here we have a pastor, someone who I thought was, you know, basically like the interpreter for God's will on this planet, who's telling me something that I'm kind of skeptical about. And guys, friends, in this day and age, there are so many leaders saying weird stuff that we're teaching an entire generation to trust no one. Millennials get it real bad. Gen Z might not even have it as bad. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of people that we're learning not to trust, and including pastors. And when we associate biblical interpretation and truth with flawed human beings, then what we do is we, uh, we ruin that person's relationship with that text and with leaders. Uh, I was thinking of... This is kind of funny. If you had an argument about Harry Potter with J.K. Rowling, like she would be right. Yeah, she'd win that. Because she wrote Harry <laughs> Potter. She knows what it intended. But with the Bible, there's no pastor on this planet that 100% knows what God intended through our scripture, which means that we need to approach this more humbly, right? We need to understand that no one owns the Bible. Every pastoral leader is doing their best, but that also means that each of us owns the Bible. Like everyone is allowed to make interpretation, to read this, to care about it. Uh, and I was, and part of this is that I meet a lot of mainline teenagers and adults who think someone else needs to translate the Bible for them. It's overwhelming to them. And what I was trying to say to them is, listen, you have just a right to read and translate or read and interpret this book as anyone else. So one, you're not getting a grade. Two, the Bible is your best friend. Three, your faith does not equal your Bible knowledge. Right? Yep. And then no one, actually everyone, owns the Bible. Yep. So what's the fifth one? Fifth one is it's meant to be multiplayer. That nice. is the big phenomenon in video games these days, right? Like yeah. Every, it's all multiplayer stuff. My son and his friends love when I play with them, I think, because they just destroy me. But honestly, I said to him the other day when they invited me down to the, to the basement to play video games, they're like, come on down and play with us. I'm like, all right, but I, I suck at this. I'm going to get killed. They're like, yeah, we know, but it's just more fun when there's more people. Kind of made me feel good, you know? Yeah. So. And that's honestly how the Bible is supposed to be. Uh, when I when I teach this part, I talk about how, you know, the Bible didn't come into uh, fruition totally. It didn't become, the New Testament didn't become canonized until the mid-300s. And so what you have is 300 years of Christians who maybe had a few letters from Paul or a few, like maybe they only had one or two of the Gospels. You have Christians who didn't have the whole New Testament. But the ones that they had, they didn't read like on solo time. Uh, only only a small percentage of people could read and write. I have people at this point usually raise their hands if they can code. And in this room, maybe 5% of people raised their hands and said that they knew some coding. And I was like, you know what? That's about the percentage of people in the first century who could read and write. Like this was a skill that was rare. And so the fact that you had this technology, right, this scroll with insight, uh, it had to be read in a public area. Like you would come together and you would listen to this person read this letter and everybody would hear it together in community and then they would discuss it. Uh, today we have something called Havruta in Judaism. This means companionship or friendship. 
And it's the rabbinic approach to, uh, to study where they pair or they put three people together and they analyze and debate. And by actually like having these conversations together, they learn more than if they were just reading the book alone. And I think it's so funny. We've developed this culture of like, oh, personal devotion time. And for hundreds of years, there was no personal devotion time. There's prayer, there's fasting, but how people approach the Bible was in community. And I ache for that time again. You know, I, I as a pastor, like I, I, I have to study alone, but I love having Bible discussions with other people because I still get insights from, it doesn't matter how fresh someone is to the Bible, I still get insights um, from their, 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 their reading the text in ways that I don't. Yeah, that's good, man. Well, that's a really good talk. I think it's it's really helpful for us to provide a practical, I mean, I'll call it real-time example. I mean, this is just something that you taught last week, and and uh, I'm sure that uh, people out there will grab the pieces of this that they that they find that they resonate with and, and take it to their students, which is the point, obviously, as I started this podcast, is that we try to provide, a, at least in this podcast, a very practical approach to resourcing uh, the church to help engage millennials and Gen Z. And I want to just invite all of you who are listening to just visit us at thinkburlap.com. There's a growing number of resources there that can help you as you have dialogue in your church context about what it looks like for you to reach and engage emerging generations. There's books, there's digital books. We have a a whole suite of, of resources that are coming out that are digital, that are uh, just meant to really be things that are helping the church. And those are most of those resources are generated from people saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if the, ch- if the church could have this? And so we're trying to create those things. We obviously can't create them all for everybody, but we're picking and choosing the ones we think we can do well and the ones we think that we can make affordable of people. So thinkburlap.com, let us know how we can help, whether it's consultation, whether it's just having a converse, quick conversation. Uh, just jump in, let us know. Well, thanks for listening. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Until next time, God bless.